So Dave, I was looking at your Facebook page the other day and you had some pictures that were like classic Russian pictures. Yeah. You do you remember those like there's there's a picture of you sitting at a uh, like a river, I think. Looked like you were eating eating lunch or eating dinner or something and maybe having coffee. Yeah, it was a, a lake actually. Uh Lake Tana and it was this pier. It was a bar right on the pier. We were I was having beers with some friends there and we're all sitting there just like this rusty old communist pier bar built in the 1970s and we're sitting there we're drinking beer and we're all talking about orthodox christianity and talking about theology yeah and so it was this classic russian scene except for one thing and that's that there were a whole bunch of hippopotamuses having sex in the water right next to us because we actually were not in russia we were in ethiopia In 2003, we moved to Russia together, and it changed us in a permanent way. We learned to survive the snow, to drink vodka, and to beat ourselves in the bathhouse. We discovered a land of poets and philosophers, of ancient mysteries and modern transformations. It was an entirely different world. Ever since we left, we've wanted to share this great country with others. Consider this podcast our love letter to Russia. I'm Grant. And I'm David. Welcome to Season 2 of To Russia With Love. So today we're talking about uh, a little bit of the influence that Russia has had around the world. During the Cold War, the communist regime in the Soviet Union was trying to spread its fingers all over as the American capitalists were doing as well. And uh, one of the places that really some of that ethos kind of stuck was um, the country of Ethiopia. Right. Ethiopia had a communist revolution that overthrew their emperor. And the government that went in place was called the Derg, uh, which means the committee in Amharic. And that was in 1974. And they were in place until 1987. So about 13 years of communism. Hmm. So you have that influence on Ethiopia, like a lot of countries in the world that had communist government that was an ally of the Soviet Union. And so the Soviets would uh, really support that government. So you had that influence in Ethiopia. Wow, I would have had no idea about that. I'm guessing you realized that and put the puzzle pieces together when you visited there last year, right? Yeah, I was. I learned a, a whole lot about this history I went to Ethiopia last uh, summer. I was there in May and June. And I went there for my friend's wedding, my friend Tesfaye. He went to college with me in California, but he's from Ethiopia. So the wedding was out there, very traditional wedding. And I went there for the wedding, and I decided to really stay for a, a good long time and, and get a feel for the country. Hmm. So I went out there, and I saw how incredibly similar to Russia Ethiopia was. Like from the first week that I was there, I started having experiences that were these deja vu experiences <laughs> where where I felt like I was back in Russia again. Huh. And some of that is connected to the history, to the, the two countries being very close uh, during the communist times especially. I was at one of the wedding parties because Ethiopian weddings, they just never end. They last weeks and weeks and it's every <laughs> relative has, has to do a... A celebration. And so they're just endless parties at different people's houses. And we were at one of the parties. It was in the Oromia territory outside of Addis Abeba. And we were with Tesfaye's family, very traditional. The whole setting was very Ethiopian, very African. A lot of the family was wearing traditional clothes and the smell of the Ethiopian spices and 
the national music's going, this minor key Ethiopian music, and we're under a tent, and there's traditional grass spread on the ground. But the one incongruous thing about all that is I was sitting with his father and uncle, and we're speaking Russian. (laughs) And uh, his father, his father, Mr. Hailu, and his uncle, they both spoke perfect Russian because Hailu, uh, my friend's father, had lived in the Soviet Union for a long time. Back when, uh, during the days of the dead government, he studied in Moscow and in Leningrad, now known as St. Petersburg. And we were talking, and he, he was there maybe 40 years ago, and he still speaks perfect Russian. (laughs) <laughs> just flawless. And so we're in this extremely African setting, but we're having a very Russian conversation about the good old days of the Soviet Union. The good old days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The way he and the uncle were describing it, too. It was it was the, exactly the kind of conversation you would expect to hear from two Russians of that age talking wow. about those those days and about how, how cheap things were. And there was this baseline standard of living for people and things were very safe and talking about all the good parts of Soviet life. Hmm. It was a conversation I've had dozens of times with middle aged people in Russia but here I was having it in Ethiopia instead. Yeah. Wow. That's That sounds like a fascinating time just being in a different country, speaking a totally different language. But that's that was one of the languages that kind of connected the two of you together. What what was he? Tell me a little more about what he was talking about. Uh, well, he studied. He went to university there. At the time, the Soviet Union had a university that was set up for foreigners and especially people from African countries, the Patrice Lumumba University, but he didn't go to that one. He was pretty proud to say that he went to the normal technical institute with normal Russian students at it because his Russian was so so good and his grades were excellent. And so he he studied in Moscow and and Leningrad for a long time. And this is, it was a few years after the revolution in Ethiopia. And so Russia was investing in Ethiopia's development, training up this generation of engineers and people to develop the infrastructure. He said he had a great time there. He said he really, he loved the food. <laughs> he told me, well, David, he said, you know, I love potatoes anyway, so I, I didn't <laughs> suffer. I had, a, I had a great time with the food and the people. He said people were really friendly. Uh, he felt a lot of solidarity, made a lot of good Russian friendships, the kinds that we've made with people, these very deep friendships and a lot like the really good parts of our experience. Of yeah. people, people who were really curious because he was foreign from this very different place, wanted to know about his home country. And he had a great time partying with Russians. He talked about how cheap vodka was. He got, I think, a monthly stipend of 28 rubles at the time, which sounds like nothing today because that's like half a dollar these days. Wow. But back in the day, 28 rubles, he said you could live like a king off of 28 rubles <laughs> because you could buy a whole bottle of Stalichnaya vodka for one ruble 20 and finish that off with a group of friends. Now, something really important that uh, Tesfaye's dad, Hailu, told me was that the ties between Russia and Ethiopia, they go way back and much earlier than just the communist times. Huh. And he, he said how Russia was the first country that recognized Ethiopia after they overthrew the emperor in 74. But uh, the connections go back way, way before that as brother Orthodox countries, two countries that are officially Orthodox Christian. Oh, yeah. And uh, and he mentioned something, that there is this belief in Ethiopia that the Russian poet Pushkin's grandfather was Ethiopian. Huh. And I looked this up. The records are a little spotty because he was actually kidnapped from Africa and brought to Russia 
and then Peter the Great freed him wow. after he got to Russia. But uh, it was actually the maternal great-grandfather of Pushkin. His name was Abram Petrovich Ganibal. And he might have been from present-day Cameroon or from a different part of Africa. But the point is, in Ethiopia, there's this almost mythological connection with Pushkin, Russia, Ethiopia, yeah. and this cultural connection. And I could totally see that in the time that I was there, that these similarities were almost eerie with how and uncanny, with how similar so many things were. And there were a lot of times when I was in Ethiopia that I felt like I was right back in Russia again. What were some of those times where you felt like you were back in Russia? So one of the first was the my first week there in the country. I was with my friend Tess and his cousins, and I think we had been out drinking somewhere and and then we went to this late night pizza place. We're parked in their car and Tess is inside getting pizza. And there's this table of dudes over drinking beer and eating pizza next to us. And uh, one of our friends took a picture and they thought that he had taken a picture of them. And so they all wanted to fight us. <laughs> and it was like a, a very drunk dude's about to kick my ass feeling just like I've had in Russia a few times. And then our guys were calming them down and my Amharic, the, the language of Ethiopia, I'd, it still wasn't great, but I was hearing a lot of selam, which is peace, and yeah. and them telling them, hey, come on, guys, we're all brothers. And and so one second, we're all about to fight each other, and then dudes are pulling out their Orthodox crosses from under their shirts and like <laughs> kissing the crosses and saying, come on, we're all Orthodox brothers and sisters. And, huh. and so then we're best buds, and the guys come over and give us kisses on the cheek. Yeah. <laughs> and they held up a piece of pizza and hand fed it to me into my mouth. <laughs> I was like, this is such a Russian moment. We yeah. go from about to fight each other to now we're drinking together and I'm getting hand fed. Yeah. Was it was it as good as the our our pizza place, Jiguli Pizza? No, not as good as Jiguli, but but it was pretty good. All a right. lot of there's a lot of really good Italian food there. Yeah, there was another time that I was at a park, Shala Park, near the hotel I stayed at. And uh, actually, the neighborhood the hotel was in is called Chechnya. Hmm. And they, they call it that because it's a really rough neighborhood, and it's kind of the red light district. Okay. And so it's like a like a war zone, like Chechnya. And so I'm, I'm in this park in the Chechnya neighborhood, and I met a table of dudes who were, you know, they saw that I was foreign right away and wanted to talk to me. And, and so I was speaking Amharic in my limited Amharic with them. And at some point, I pulled out my Russian Orthodox cross and told them about my Russian heritage. And and so they pull out their crosses on their necks and kiss them. And and they were almost moved to tears at this hmm. like, spiritual connection between us, despite all the, all the differences and distance. And so like all of them had to come and hug me and kiss me on both cheeks and we're drinking beer together. Hmm. So a lot of that male platonic intimacy. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the drinking experiences were really reminding me of, of Russia uh, when I was in a different city, Gondar, which was the historic capital of Ethiopia, the first day that I met my tour guide, Samuel, and then he became a good friend after that. But he took me back to my hotel on my first night, and we went inside, and he he went in with me, and then he talked to the guy behind the desk, and he asked the guy in Amharic, he said, hey, do you have any areki? And areki is uh, homemade liquor in Ethiopia. Ah. And just the way he asked in a, such a casual way, like, do you have any moonshine on hand by chance? Because <laughs> we had been having the, having a couple beers and he felt like a little something else. And and so the guy said, yeah, I think I do. Let me look back here. And, and he pulled out a bottle of moonshine that just happened to be there. And so we all did a shot of moonshine. 
And I've had that experience so many times in Russia where yeah. you just you go to somebody's house and somebody says, Do you have any samagon? The moonshine in Russia. But beyond the, the drinking culture, there were just all kinds of deja vu scenes and the look of places, especially buildings that had been built during the Derg government in the six, 70s and yeah. 80s. Um, like a lot of these really bright, punishing white lights everywhere. <laughs> like a lot of places had that Soviet cafeteria feel to them. Yeah, yeah. Super bright white lights and really sparse decorations. You know, and things like when we were living in Russia, when things were still a little unstable, there would be these frequent blackouts or water getting shut off. Uh, my hotel that I stayed in, some days there would be TV, but there wouldn't be lights. And I could never figure out how that worked <laughs> that there was like some other source of electricity but the TVs worked and the lights didn't yes somebody and their answer is like well it's tuesday like <laughs> like that explains it <laughs> yeah i mean that was that was yeah, our yeah. experience right exactly it was exactly like that just just <laughs> like in russia like well, but they are hot water pipes yeah <laughs> yeah that kind of like bureaucracy and Trying to find logic in things and the sort of things that will drive a foreigner up the wall when a Western when foreigner you're new to the country, Western foreigner, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like uh, Ethiopia, the it's a cash economy for the most part, um, so everything gets paid in cash. Like even huge construction projects that are worth millions of dollars. The thing with cash though is there's no bill bigger than three dollars, a hundred bur. <laughs> so to pay for anything, you have to you feel like a baller because you have this huge stack of bills on you. <laughs> yeah. And you just have to whip out this billfold. Yeah, so many things with uh dealing with the government or with the staff at hotels, like just rules for the sake of having rules. So all of that combined with all these buildings that were from the Soviet times and looked very Soviet made me really feel like I was back in Russia. Huh. And so there was that that experience that we started off talking about. Um, that was in the city of Bardar. And it uh, it totally could have been Russia. I'm on this like lakeside pier drinking beer with guys talking about Orthodox theology. And the only thing that made it not Russia was where I was, you know, the the physical look of people, the language we're speaking, and the fact that there are wild hippos in the lake having sex next to us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would that but, would totally take me out of the moment. <laughs> yeah, that ruined the Russianness a little bit. <laughs> so these similarities, they go back to the history of of the countries. It, it's an eerily similar history that they both have. Yeah. So they're they're both ancient these ancient Orthodox Christian cultures. Um, Ethiopia is one of the world's oldest Orthodox countries, actually. Yeah, it's 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 kind of uh, seen as maybe one of the first starting places of Christianity. I mean, that's that's a, that's a long history in the Orthodox Church. Is that Ethiopia was one of the first places ever to actually have a like a substantial church group of people there. Yeah, it might be the world's oldest Christian country yeah. as a country that collectively took on institutional Christianity. And of course, Ethiopia is tied to the, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, there's the story in Acts of the Ethiopian eunuch, who, is it Philip who, who yeah. meets him? Yeah, meets him, converts him on the on the road and baptizes him and then, and then uh, disappears. <laughs> right. Yeah, and even beyond, even further back, uh, before Christian history, in Jewish history, there's there are these yeah. ties with with Israel and Ethiopia. Uh, according to Ethiopian tradition, 
one of King Solomon's wives, the Queen of Sheba, yeah. she was Ethiopian. And Sheba was an old word for Ethiopia. Cush yeah. is another word referring to it back in the Bible. So yeah. there are these ancient ancient connections with Jewish history and Christian history. You know, obviously Russian. Russia has this really old Orthodox Christian tradition. And actually both countries, they even have a special ancient language that is only used for the liturgy in the Orthodox Church nowadays. Hmm. So in Russia, it's the old Slavonic language. It's like old Russian, basically, yeah. but nobody speaks it, this really ancient version of it. And that's formalized in the liturgy of the church. And that's the only place you find that language anymore. Huh. And same with Ethiopia. It's the, the Ge'ez language was an ancient form of what's now Amharic, which is the, the official language of Ethiopia. And the ancient language is what they do their Orthodox mass in. Yeah. So there's this connection with other Orthodox countries. Um, Armenians have been accepted in Ethiopia. They were merchants there for a long time. Uh, there are still a lot of Armenian families that live in, in Addis Abeba. Which is interesting because Armenia and Ethiopia are – Armenia is another one of the older Christian communities uh, claiming to have roots back you know, as early as the 3rd or 4th century, um, right around when <laughs> Ethiopia was – claiming that being a an official Christian country. They're they're very right. similar in that way too. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's and just beyond religion, even both Ethiopia and Russia, they're both these very important centers of culture and civilization in the region. Yeah. Ethiopia for its neighbors, Russia, this this ancient empire, ancient culture. And another thing they have in common, they're two countries that have never been conquered. Hmm. And a lot of people have tried to conquer them, tried to take them over. And uh, actually, Ethiopia is the only one of two countries in Africa that were never colonized. Huh. It's uh, Ethiopia and Liberia is the other one during that colonial period when all the Western powers are grabbing up land in Africa. Italy tried to colonize Ethiopia. They couldn't fully do it. You know, same with Russia over centuries. Napoleon, all these different Hitler, all these people tried to conquer Russia. Nobody could do it. Yeah. So there's these very, very strong, powerful, proud nations that have this long history. Yeah. Another thing they have in common is the the cultural diversity inside the country. Hmm. So they're both countries that have this dominant culture and dominant language, which obviously Russian, Slavic language for Russia. In Ethiopia, it's the Amharic language. So there's that that dominant official language that has its own alphabet and a long tradition of literature. And uh, even religious diversity, too. Just like Russia, Ethiopia has historically been a, a traditionally Orthodox Christian country, but it's always had a, a big Muslim minority also. Huh. You know, when I was living in Sweden, I met some folks from Ethiopia. Alongside that, I also met some folks from Eritrea, which is the oh, country yeah. next to Ethiopia. Right. They're, they're pretty similar. They, they share the same language. But I was thinking about them recently because in the book that you gave me, Russian Journal, Andrea Lee talked about meeting a young man at the university there in Moscow. It was right in the time that there was this kind of revolution and split between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Yeah, that's that's the chapter called Ibrahim. I think was its name. Yeah, yeah, and actually, actually, the uh, my friend, one of my friends in Sweden was named that Ibrahim. Oh yeah, <laughs> but I never knew about that. I never knew that there was you know a split. And when I heard them speaking similar languages, I thought they were the same, from the same country, from the same people. But they let me know in no uncertain terms that 
that there was a big difference between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Yeah, definitely. What do you know about that? And that's another one of those funny similarities with with Russia is that Ethiopia has that this territory that used to be part of Ethiopia and now it's its own country, which is Eritrea. Uh-huh. And that's that's really similar to Ukraine with Russia. Oh, yeah. Talked to a lot of Russians, and a lot of Russians still believe that Ukraine, or at least parts of Ukraine, Crimea, uh-huh. historically they were part of the greater Rus Empire. So a lot of people believe that that it should be one united territory. Yeah. Uh, but then you talk to a lot of people from Ukraine, and they believe that they are their own identity, their own country, and they want to be independent. Yeah. Same thing with Eritrea. The Ukrainians that I met in Sweden also very similar, let it be known in no uncertain terms that Ukraine is a different country and different than Russia. <laughs> well, I remember you told a, a story in a different episode also about, I think it was a Latvian friend yeah. who had made salat olivier, yeah. the, the potato salad, and they made it really clear that, no, this is a Latvian salad. Yeah. This is not a Russian salad. Yeah. Same thing with uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea. Uh, historically, Eritrea was part of the same territory, uh, but yeah, there is a different... Uh, you know, different identity, and uh, during so during the time when when Russian journal Andrea Lee's book was written, mm-hmm. right in the middle of the Cold War in the seventies, um, so the Western capitalist powers were taking advantage of those differences to sow division between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so you had the you have the Western capitalists supporting Eritrean independence, and then you have the Soviet Union supporting Ethiopia's government because it was a communist government, a government. Yeah, that's right. So in that book, if I remember correctly, I think Ibrahim was Eritrean, and he he supported the independence movement, but he saw it as—it sounds like he saw it as a lost cause— yeah. In that book, which it turned out not to be. It's still an independent country. Yeah, I think that that chapter ends with him walking off into the night after saying something like he's going to go back to his country and die. They, yeah, because it's uh, when they do the divination practice. Yeah. They do the pr- traditional Russian to contact the, the spirits of the dead to tell the future. Yeah. And and he asks what's in his future, and it spells out in the Cyrillic alphabet. They make kind of a Ouija board, and it spells out the word smirts. Yeah, death. death. That was really interesting, and uh, and to it, it, that's I mean that's that's a big thing about along with our history in America, the way that we our governments would support revolutions in different countries to sow dissent within communist regimes and you know overthrowing governments and but that was one that there yeah there is a difference and there there now are two countries two separate countries but they didn't fully change. Ethiopia. Yeah, and there's there are still many cultural ties between Ethiopia and Eritrea and between Russia and Ukraine. Oh. I mean, cultural, religious, historic ties. And I've met both Ethiopians and Eritreans here in San Diego, and I, I always love chatting with them. They're excited when I speak Amharic. And I've noticed this might be me reading too much into it, but I feel like there's even a similarity between Ukrainians and Eritreans. Huh. Culturally, Eritreans strike me as more easygoing and laid back. Both Eritreans and Ethiopians are very friendly, very hospitable, yeah. but there's more of that sense of being from a smaller country that is not a big player on the world stage, uh, uh, which is also a sense I've gotten with a lot of a lot of Ukrainians that I've met, like a little bit more easygoing, laid back, almost uh, like the, the Californians of Eastern Europe. <laughs> yeah, and so during the Cold War, of course, uh, you've got those ties between Russia and Ethiopia's government. 
Um, but they, like we mentioned, they go back way farther than that. In fact, at the San Diego Library the other day, I found a book from 1927, and it talks a lot about the Russians living in Addis Abeba in Ethiopia's capital in huh. 1927. Wow. Long before any of that stuff. Yeah. And it's uh, the <laughs> the book, it's, it's from 1927 by this British guy, Nesbitt is the author. And so the, the title's kind of unfortunate. It's called The Hellhole of Creation. Oh, man. And not not a super PC title, uh, but he's actually, he's not talking about the whole country of Ethiopia. He goes to the Danakil Valley, which is, it ranges like 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Ooh. Super hot place. And so, uh, so that's what he's referring to as the hellhole. But the first couple chapters are in the capital, and he talks about there being a lot of Russians living in the capital. Huh. And one of his friends he makes in Addis Abeba, his name is uh, Alexander Fermor, former colonel of from the Russian Imperial Cavalry. So before the Russian Revolution, uh, this guy had moved to Ethiopia or probably moved there around the revolution in exile, leaving Russia. Wow. And he was trying to work his way up in Ethiopia's army. And so he talks about this guy and says he's not the only one. And he so I'll quote from the book here. He, he says, the most interesting foreign community in Addis Abeba is the Russian. They were all good people of good social antecedents, and there was a considerable proportion of women amongst them. Ever since the Tsar Alexander III made the Abyssinians, that's Ethiopians, a present of a ship's cargo of discarded rifles, the Russians have been regarded as friends. After the Bolshevik Revolution, many Russians took refuge in Abyssinia, and preference was given to them. So that's interesting. Before Russia's government and Ethiopia's were friends, there were Russian refugees living in Ethiopia. Wow. And they, they seem to have liked the Russians more than the other foreigners. He's got a quote where they say, we fear the British, we hate the Italians, we loathe the French. But he heard more more good things to be said about the Russians living there. Huh. So yeah, really, really long ties between the countries. And another similarity I found was within the country, in Russia and in Ethiopia, there's a lot of ethnic diversity inside the country. Yeah. And you remember that from Russia. We had friends from different backgrounds, ethnicities. Uh, Saratov was famous for having a lot of diversity. The The figure that was always quoted was a, that 111 different ethnicities lived in Saratov. Yeah, that's right. So Ethiopia also. You've got 80-something languages that are spoken in Ethiopia, hmm. uh, lots of different ethnicities, different phenotypes, the way people look. So there's this dominant culture and language in Ethiopia. It's Amharic. In Russia, of course, Russian and the Cyrillic alphabet. Amharic has its own alphabet. But within that country, there's a, a ton of diversity. And also Ethiopia, just like Russia— is one of the few countries on earth that has a really long history of all three Abrahamic religions coexisting huh. in peace. Okay. And for, I mean, relatively for most of its history, you know, managing to coexist between Christians, Jewish, and Muslim people all living in the same country. Wow. And so Ethiopia has this long history of Muslims and, and Jewish people, probably about a, th a third Muslim to this day. So even though it's Christian-dominant, Orthodox, yeah. these other religious minorities are there. All right. So one thing I want to ask about, you mentioned earlier, you know, one of your times or a couple of times drinking with some friends. What was the what was the drinking culture like? In those stories, you talked about similarities. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So a lot like when, when we lived in Russia, there is a big developed drinking culture 
And because there's a culture around it, a lot of people will drink a lot, but there are traditions that keep it in check. It's not the culture of binge drinking like you find in in a younger country like the U.S., like Australia, uh, where there's a lot of binge drinking, a lot of really dangerous excesses. And th- yeah, there is there are people who take it to excess in Russia and Ethiopia, but there are a lot of traditions around it, around the toasts, the way you do it, drinking with each other, keep pacing each other. So I saw a lot of that, just like in Russia. Huh. And something interesting, I rarely ever saw anybody in Ethiopia look like they were drunk. Huh. We would be drinking, you know, beer is a big thing, whiskey also for people who can afford it. There are a lot of homemade uh, types of beers and liquors, just like in Russia, there's Samagon and other homemade wines. And in Ethiopia, there's mead, uh, honey wine. It's known as taj in, in Ethiopia. Oh. And there's this ancient, um, and mead's mentioned, I, I believe in the Bible, there's a part where mead is mentioned. And uh, Ethiopia has been making it for thousands of years. Wow. And there's also a, there's a homemade beer made out of barley with no hops. It's called tala. And there's the homemade liquor, areques, what it's called. And uh, so all these traditions of making alcohol and drinking it together. But it's always a, a communal thing like in Russia. That's another thing I want to ask about is when it comes to food. Uh, the one thing that I know about Ethiopian food, I have a friend who uh, has told me he wants to take me out to the Ethiopian restaurant in town. Oh, do it, man. The one thing I know is it's kind of like family style. You sit down at a table and you get a big – you order something – you know, it's not like everybody orders their own separate things, but you, you eat together. And I remember that was similar in Russia, you know, when we would go out to eat or if we'd go to a nice restaurant, it was more like a sit down family style, you know, three course thing where everybody gets all of the courses and you, you know, you eat from the same dishes and stuff like that. What, what was your experience? You were, you must've been feasting. You were at a party, you were at the wedding party. There must've been a lot of feasting oh. and stuff. So Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. I ate really well in Ethiopia. Yeah, lots of different wedding parties with my friend Tess. And then with other friends that I met there, I had amazing food. Have you ever had Ethiopian food? No, I haven't. I All I know is you kind of eat it with your hands and there, maybe there's some kind of bread or, or doughy thing that you use to eat instead of utensils. Yeah. So just like you said, it's one plate of food that goes right in the middle of the table and it's this very communal, egalitarian thing. It's a huge tray, like a big metal tray, and there's a piece of this flatbread. Anjera is what it's called. It's like a, yeah, sort of like a spongy tortilla-type flatbread. Huh. And so then the there are different dishes that are poured on top of it, so it soaks up the flavor. And then everyone has rolls of the, the anjera, that flatbread. And so you rip off a piece with your right hand. Because it's this old world world culture, just like biblical times, where yeah. the right hand is the clean hand to eat with, because the left hand is all the nasty stuff. It's the poop hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you only use your right hand to eat. So rip off a piece of anjeta and pick up a bite of the food, and and everybody eats off the same plate. To the idea of ordering your own food just for you to have in a restaurant is extremely rude. It's kind of offensive. Food. Yeah. It's like, no, you guys, you're not getting any of my cornflakes. I'm gonna eat them myself. <laughs> Yeah, so everybody eats off that plate in the center, and, and it's a shared experience. I mean, because I was traveling alone, when it was just me without any friends, it was, I had some hard times finding easy, quick food. There's not a lot of, like, fast food culture or street food. Yeah. Because, my as my friend Tess told me, food is sacred, and eating is a, it's a shared 
sacred experience that you don't take lightly and you uh. don't just stand on the street stuffing your face with something. Uh. Another thing that, that really reminded me of, of Vitaly and other people in Russia, you remember that people would always be encouraging you to keep eating. Yeah. Um, or like Mama Nadia with the kasha. Classic Mama Nadia. Just keep shoveling it in her mouth. <laughs> yeah, and I would I would hear a lot of that in Ethiopia. If I'd even... If I was already eating and I'm already I'm sitting down, I've got a bite of food in my mouth and another one on deck in my hand, and my friend would still be saying, Bila, 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 like, come on, eat, take another bite. <laughs> you know, it would frustrate me because I'd be like, I know what I'm supposed to do, man. I'm already eating. <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah. But he's just being polite. He's saying, like, please, you know, the same way in Russia, you'd hear like, beauty. Yeah. Like saying, come on, have, take some more and, and making sure that you feel welcome at the table. All right. Cool. Yeah, so tons of tons of similarities. Another kind of minor one, but just another sign that Ethiopia is the Russia of Africa, uh, was this parallel with the languages. Like we talked about in our April Fool's episode, how in Russian there are a lot of words that sound funny yeah. to an English speaker. And Amharic, same thing. There are I kept a list of tons of really funny sound well, words that sound funny for English because they sound like English words. Yeah. The list is really long, but I'll, I'll only mention two of them. Um, one is this traditional toothbrush, like made of branches that people would use in the olden days. And the word for that, I'm not sure how it's written, but it, I swear it sounds like they're saying mifakya. <laughs> <laughs> and so I heard people talking about going to the market to buy a mifakya. And I just looked at them like, what? Mifakya? And that's, uh, that's the name of this toothbrush. And another word, the word for love, or to, like an affectionate term for saying my love is fukur. <laughs> and I learned I learned fukur from a taxi driver who was, he got a call on his cell phone and he answered it. It was his son. And he was talking to him in, in Amharic. And I kept on hearing him say this word. He's like, oh, fukur. Chigurilim fukur. Oh, hidalhu fukur. <laughs> and I'm just like, who is this fukur he's talking to? I've heard taxi drivers <laughs> use that before, but I don't think it was in an affectionate way. <laughs> yeah, you'll hear that in the States, too. Yeah. <laughs> in a different, different context. Hmm. That, uh, that makes me want to ask a question about kind of the intimacy between people. In America, you don't – even dads to their sons aren't calling them my love, you know, or it's not right. – we're not very affectionate here. But that was something – in Russia, there was an affection between men that was different than the states. And it sounds like it was similar in Ethiopia. Oh, 100%. Yeah, there are tons of platonic male intimacy between between friends. And it's interesting because it's not a – not a culture where there's public displays of affection between men and women, between spouses. Huh. Uh, you don't see, don't see people kissing on the street or anything like that. That's all reserved for private life. But uh, between friends of the same sex, men and women, there's just tons of physical uh, closeness. Yeah. And this real platonic intimacy. Like in Russia, you see lots of men, you know, hugging each other. I got really used to just having a, a dude's arm draped across my shoulders when I was there. Oh, yeah. I uh, I think a little bit of our friend Moslov. Yeah, like Moslov. He was always just kind of hanging on us and have his arms around our, our neck. And I think there was even a couple of times where he'd like kiss us on the cheek and it took us back. <laughs> you know, we weren't used to that. Yeah, because we don't we don't do that so much in, in the States, in no. our culture. 
But that was it just took some getting used to. It took some getting used to. That was just his way to show affection and that he cared about us, that he enjoyed being around us. Yeah, and you see that in Ethiopia too. Tons of like male yeah. kisses on the cheek. Even you'll even see two dudes holding hands sometimes walking down the street, and they're not a gay couple. They're two platonic friends who are just close friends with each other, and it's a very normal way to to show that you care about somebody. And so when you get used to it, it's really nice. It's nice to be able to just be close to your friends and not feel like you have to have this personal space all the time. Yeah. So at the, toward the end of my time in Ethiopia, when I was about to to fly out of Addis, I was in my hotel there and I got a call from my buddy Nikita. Um, okay, yeah. He lives in Moscow now. That's Nikita we did English camp with, right? Yeah, he's from Saratov. We, we met him at English camp. He lives in Moscow now. And uh, and he just happened to call me out of the blue. He had no idea I was in Africa. Huh. He was even asking me about the time zone and is he waking me up? And I said, no, I'm I'm in the same hemisphere, actually. I'm just <laughs> really far south from you. Yeah. It drove home all these similarities because he was, uh, you know, it was a very Russian friends conversation. And he's he's telling me, like, you know, I just wanted to say hi and I, you know, I miss you and I love you and and all these things that you don't hear in English no. very much. That platonic male friend intimacy. And it was a nice way to close out the trip, you know, to be re- reminded of this good friend from Russia, Nikita, and new friends that I'd made in Ethiopia, my friend Samuel yeah. and other people. And that's this very special thing that cannot be overvalued in Russia and in Ethiopia is friendship. Uh-huh. Friendship really, really matters. Yeah. And when somebody is your friend, you're, you'll do anything for them. There's, there's no phoniness there. It's just somebody that you open your heart to and tell them your problems and and you're there for each other. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's been cool hearing some of your experience as a friend uh, to be able to experience some of that through you, Dave. Thanks for thanks for sharing that with me. Thanks for sharing that with everybody. Yeah, I'm glad to glad to share it. And I hope folks were interested in this kind of an unusual episode. Uh, We got geographically far away from Russia, but I'd I'd be interested if other people are familiar with the two cultures, Ethiopian and Russian, if there's anybody out there who's traveled to both countries, who's been in Russia and Ethiopia. And and I'm wondering if you noticed the same things. Did you feel like there were these similarities or do you think I'm totally full of it? (laughs) <laughs> let me let me know either way. What what are your impressions? As far as I know, you could be making this whole thing up. I wasn't there at all. <laughs> Ethiopia doesn't even exist. I made up the whole country. Yeah. Well, reach out to us. Let us know that. Hit us up on our social media, TRWL underscore podcast. You can find us there on Instagram with that. You can find us on both Facebook and Twitter at TRWL podcast. Email us as well. If, you, if you've got a long story, if you've got a write out a whole bunch, send us an email, trwlpodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. We consider you, our listeners, our friends. So reach out, show us some of that affection that we've been talking about. And we're glad that you're listening and, and hope you're having a good time with these stories as well. Today's episode of To Russia With Love was sponsored by the Danakil Valley of Ethiopia. Only 150 degrees Fahrenheit in the shade. Danakil Valley, it is like banya outside. Please, thank you.